Okay, so we continue this morning on the topic of the application of salvation. If you were with us last week, you may remember that Will taught on the doctrine of adoption and its role in the application of salvation. And what we looked at last week is we we saw this glorious privilege uh, that we have of being called sons and daughters of the living God who is our Father. And one of the things that we'll be looking at this week is how, as sons and daughters, God works in us to make us more and more like his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there from your handout that I'm going to use the 1689 Confession of Faith's outline for this doctrine to guide us along because it does really such a great job of defining what this doctrine is and how it functions in our lives as believers. Um, So I want to begin by reading paragraph 1. And if somebody can read that for me, because I just realized that I forgot to bring one of those sheets up for myself. Okay, so really, really helpful, and we'll dig into that and and unpack this a little bit more, but let let me begin maybe by asking a question. If you had to just give a one-sentence definition of sanctification, how would you define it? Amen. Good. So there's that progressive nature of becoming more like Christ, right? Yeah. And everyday means, that's important as well. Any other uh, thoughts on that? Good. I, and and that's, that's how I thought we would answer that, because I think most of us, when we, think of, when we think about sanctification, we start with what Lucy just mentioned there, what's called progressive Uh, sanctification. And again, that's the process by which God, through those various means of grace that he has given, conforms us into the image of his son so that we progressively look more and more like him and less and less like ourselves, that is who we are by nature. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more, progressive sanctification. But I want to start with what we would call definitive sanctification before we get into Uh, progressive sanctification. It's that definite, definitive sanctification, it's that, is that definite one-time act of God setting us apart for himself. In other words, we're set apart from the common ways of this world unto God himself. When something is sanctified in scripture, it's set apart for a special use. And it becomes God's special possession. 
In his book, Devoted to God, Sinclair Ferguson likens definitive sanctification to God putting his reserved sign upon something or someone, marking it out as his own, whether it be an instrument that's used in the temple worship or somebody being marked out by God himself to be his own. Regarding the people of God, Ferguson says this, he marks us out for his personal possession and use. We belong to him and to nobody else, not even ourselves. We are devoted to God. I think that's a really helpful definition of that definitive sanctification. And one of the things that we want to understand is this idea of sanctification is rooted in the reality that God himself is described in Scripture as one who is sanctified, as one who is set apart. I want you to look with me at Leviticus chapter 10. And we'll read here verses 1 through 3. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God declares here that he is to be honored as one who is set apart. He is holy, right? So he's showing that I'm I'm to be honored as one who is sanctified, one who is set apart, one who is holy. And because he is holy, he's called us to himself, and in so doing, he sets us apart as holy and calls us to be holy. Okay, So when when I say that he sets us apart as holy, that would be definitive sanctification, that one-time act of God setting us apart for himself, and then he calls us to be holy progressively, right? Looking more and more like Jesus. And a good passage that kind of deals with this reality is Colossians 1, verse 13. If I can have somebody read that for us. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Okay, so there you have that aspect of that transfer that takes place, right? All of us by nature were in the domain of darkness. And God delivers us from that and transfers us to the kingdom of his, of his beloved son. So we're set apart now. We're taken from one place and we're moved to another. That's the aspect of definitive sanctification. And that's what's being described here in our confession in this first sentence. That, that moment of being given a new heart and a new spirit is that moment of definitive sanctification. We go from being rebels against God to being called saints of God. Isn't that that amazing? I mean, in a moment, you go from being a rebel 
against God, to being called a saint of God. And that word saint is a word that's commonly used throughout the New Testament. It's the same word as holy. Hagios is the Greek word there, and it means holy, saint, one who is consecrated, one who is set apart. And that's really important because when you see the Apostle Paul in particular starting his letter to the churches, he starts by describing who they now are in Christ. And it's really encouraging when you start from that perspective. Okay, so let me show you some passages that deal with this. Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be consecrated ones, ones who have been set apart. Okay, so there's his letter to Rome, Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, all the holy ones, all the consecrated ones, all the ones who have been set apart for God, have been devoted to him. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay, so we, we get out of that mindset, right, that a saint is somebody that's really lived an honorable life, and therefore now they get that title at the end of their life based on how they've lived. Where God says, the moment you are born again, this is what I call you. A saint, one who has been set apart, devoted to me. And then he works in us progressively the rest of our lives to make us more and more holy because that's what we already are in position. That's important to see. He says this here in Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, and then notice how he describes us, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, I think a lot of us, if we think about our life, even over the course of the last week, would we feel confident to say, man, I, I'm holy. Look at my life over the last week, right? I think we'd be like, well, no, I don't want to say that. <laughs> but this is what God says about us because it's who we are positionally and what he is making us more and more like each day. I think one of the best texts that deals with this issue of definitive sanctification is seen in Romans 6. So go ahead and turn there with me to Romans 6. And I want to read verses 1 through 11 here. And as we do this, I want you to see how many times Paul points to the past to show these Christians how it is to affect them in the present. Okay? So watch what he says about them. You'll see all these past tense phrases that he uses and how that's to affect us in the present. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now watch this. How can we who died to sin, right, past tense, still live in it presently? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so again, that happened in the past. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, notice that, has died, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, Paul, you, you, you have this mixture here of what Paul says, what happened to you, and because of what happened to you, here's how it ought to be affecting you now in your present day life. So you have that definitive sanctification of what God did for us in Christ, and now this progressive sanctification of now live in light of who you are. Okay? And that's what definitive sanctification deals with here. And from that definitive sanctification flows progressive sanctification. And that's what the confession goes on to state in the rest of this first paragraph. So if you don't have a handout yet, you can grab one. They're on the back table there. But this second sentence, I want to go ahead and uh, read that. Okay, so the first sentence deals with definitive sanctification, what God has done for us in Christ. Now, the second sentence says, Furthermore, they are also really and personally sanctified through the same means, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Just as the word and the spirit worked effectively in our justification, they also work effectively in our sanctification. John 17, 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. How does that happen? Your word is truth, right? So you see that aspect of sanctification coupled with the word of God. And notice in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the effect of the word is so that we can build one another up, right? We don't come just trying to give good advice to each other. We come with the word of God to each other to build one another up. That's the means by which God sanctifies us. So we see from these passages that the word is effective and necessary in our sanctification. And from this next passage, we'll see how the spirit is effective and necessary in our sanctification. If I can have somebody read that there, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, notice back in verse 16. How is it that we are strengthened? Through his spirit. You see that? Strengthened with power. My prayer is for you that you be strengthened with power through his spirit. And then notice, what are you strengthened for when you drop down to verse 18? That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right. So the spirit takes the word and works powerfully in us through that word. Another passage that speaks to this end of the work of the Spirit in our sanctification, Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? So it's by the Spirit that we kill the flesh. Now, how does that work? Right? What is that? How does that manifest itself out. Well, I think Paul gives us a good insight at the end of Ephesians when he's talking about the armor of God. And he says, and take the helmet of salvation, and then notice this, and the sword of the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit has a sword, so to speak. And what is that sword by which the Spirit kills? The Word of God. And what is the Spirit killing? The flesh, the remaining sin that is in our lives. It's impossible, listen, to truly be sanctified apart from the Spirit and the Word. You will not be sanctified truly apart from those things. In fact, you can say it this way. The Spirit uses the Word to sanctify us, and the Word is ineffective apart from the Spirit. Those are the means that God has given to us. And I think we could readily testify, can't we, that when we see a neglect of the means of grace that God has given to us, it does not take long for the flesh to take opportunity to manifest itself in our lives. It rises up quickly like a weed in your backyard, right? It's like, I just pulled that yesterday. How did that happen? This little green grass over here that I've been watering for a month, it's like one little sprout shoots up, but this weed needs nothing and it just readily pops up with nothing, right? And it's a good reminder for us of how easily sin can grow in our hearts if we're not consistently making war against it. And we'll get to that in a second. Okay, let's look at the last sentence here in paragraph one says this, the power of every part of the body of sin is destroyed and its various lusts are increasingly weakened and put to death and saving graces are increasingly brought to life and strengthened in them so that they practice true holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. You may remember I showed you a chart, the first lesson of our Doctrine of Salvation class, that looks something like this. And I want to turn to that again real quick in Titus chapter 2. 
And let's look here at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. If I can get somebody to read that for us. You can read through 14, actually. Titus 2, 11 through 14. So we want to take that. Thanks, Peter. So you notice here in 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So this is when we become Christians, right? That's when the, the grace of God is um, imputed to us. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And now that war begins, right? Here it is, the upward climb, the fight, the battle, Titus 2.12. The grace of God, notice here, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. So this is what the confession is speaking about. This aspect of these various lusts are increasingly weakened and put to death, right? That's the aspect of Titus 2.12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then the confession goes on here to say, and saving graces are increasingly brought to life. And that's what the second half of verse 12 says here. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, so that's, that's, this is where we're at. We're in Titus 2.12 right now as believers in Jesus Christ. We've come here by God's grace and we're not yet here. We're in the midst of this right here. But verse 13 is the reality that we're waiting for something. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which other passages tell us that when that happens, we too will be glorified with him. And so we're longing for that day to come. But that's what the confession is getting at here is this war that's taking place. That holiness is truly coming about in our lives. And without it, we will not see the, the Lord. And so you can see why this is called progressive sanctification because we're, we're, we're just moving upwards and we have these peaks and valleys all along the way. But the one constant is this progressive movement that God is working in us. Okay, this is, this is like these little areas right here. That's when we're like, I don't even think I'm saved, <laughs> right? This is like, how could I possibly be saved and still fill in the blank? Think this, say that, whatever the case may be. You got to pull back the lens and look at your life overall and say, I'm definitely not where I want to be, but by God's grace, I see evidences of holiness in my life. I see a, a true passion in my heart to live godly and to bring him glory and honor. So we're, we're making progress in the faith, even in the midst of setbacks. God and his faithfulness is continuing to move us forward. And I really like Colossians 1.11 that talks about this. Paul, again, now praying for Colossians in the very similar way that he did to the Ephesians. May you be strengthened with all power according, no, notice this, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I just love that. When I was studying through that this week, 
according to his glorious might. That's going to be the testimony of every believer on that day. Did I get here on my own strength? Do I have something to boast in? No. Why am I here? According to his glorious might. That's why I'm here. And it is glorious and it is mighty. Because when you think about your own sin and what it needs to, how it needs to be overcome, nothing less than the power of God will get us to where we need to be. But notice here, it says that he does this for all endurance. Now that's, that's really interesting because that doctrine of endurance or perseverance presupposes that there will be obstacles in the way of our sanctification. In fact, the original word in the Greek here for endurance is made up of two words, one which means to abide or to remain, and the other means under. So you put those two together, and what you come up with is to abide or to remain under. That's that's the life of a Christian, right? You abide or you remain under. You keep persevering in the midst of that war against sin. God continues to cause you to persevere, and again, it will be according to his glorious might. And then one more thing that I want to bring out from this first paragraph here in the confession is the aspect of sin being killed, righteousness coming to life, and true holiness being the fruit of that. How does that happen? How can we be sure that the holiness that we see in our lives is a true holiness and not a false holiness? See, the writers of the confession, they understood well that there is a perceived holiness that is birthed out of the flesh. That is a false holiness, a hypocritical holiness, a self-righteous holiness. And I think a good clue to see whether this is true holiness is found in one of the passages that the confession cites here. And that's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. But I want to back up to 2 Corinthians 6. So if you have your scriptures turn there to 2 Corinthians 6. I want you to look here, starting in verse 14, and I'm going to read through 7.1. So there shouldn't be a chapter break between 6.18 and 7.1. That, that, that flows together. but I don't have the authority to just jump in there and switch it. So I'm just telling you that when you read through it, it ought to be together because there's a conclusion to it. So look at this, 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, What should we do in light of that? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice what Paul says here in verse 16. 
We are the temple of the living God. That's a factual statement about our status. And then in 7.1, he says, since we have these promises. So Paul uses these promises of God to promote the sanctification of the Corinthians. He doesn't just tell them to stop doing what they're doing and begin doing what they should be doing. No, he brings to light who they are in Christ and the sweetness and depth of fellowship that is at their disposal if they turn away from sin and turn to God. And in this passage, God doesn't simply use a moral argument to persuade us to live holy. Rather, he uses communion with himself as the sufficient and all-satisfying incentive to live holy. And that's what every believer wants at the end of the day. What, what is it that you want when it's all said and done? Communion with God. Isn't that the longing of your heart? Isn't that the joy of what we read about in the new heavens and the new earth? And I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will walk among them. I will be with them. How we long for that reality. And that causes that holiness to spring forth in our lives. And the confession says here so rightly, holiness is not an option. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. Positionally, that must be true, but it must manifest itself practically as well. If there's no evidence of a desire and a longing to live holy, there's no reason to have assurance that you're truly right with God. Because if we truly have the Holy Spirit, we will live holy. That's His nature. That's His character. And that is what He does in the lives of His people. But we want to make sure that it's a true holiness, right? Not a, not a false holiness. We're not just setting up a system to try to become more moral. It must be within our hearts that God works for that true holiness to be birthed forth. Okay, um, we're going to move on to paragraph two here. Any questions on paragraph one before we, before we move on? Or comments? No? Okay, let's, let's look here at... Paragraph 2, 13.2, if somebody can read that for us. Thank you. All right, so let's, let's look at this, this first part here. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person. God, God is sanctifying us. So you look back over your life as a Christian, and by grace you see God's faithfulness in conforming you more into the image of his Son. But however much progress we have made, we recognize, as the confession states here, that some remnants of corruption still remain in every part. Amen? We're all too aware of that on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, right? It's like, how, where did that thought come from, right? It's like, just, I just want to 
rip my mind out sometimes. But this is the reality of what God's doing in our lives. He's, he's making us aware of that sin so that we can turn away from it. And yet it, it remains. Some remnants of corruption still remain and they still will. So Romans chapter 7. And I take the position here that Paul is speaking about himself presently and not as he was before he came to Christ and now who he is in Christ. I believe this is a real battle going on in the converted Paul. And we can talk about that afterwards if you disagree. So look at me starting here at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay, so you see this war that is going on inside of Paul. I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Amen? Can you testify to that as a believer in Jesus Christ? Right? I've said this in times past. Man, to wake up one day and walk in perfect holiness before the Lord, bringing Him glory in every thought, word, and deed. How incredible would that be? Isn't that... Man, that means, that means perfect communion with God. That's what we long for. Yet, evil lies close at hand. <laughs> right? That godly thought, one moment, the next moment is replaced by the flesh just making war against that thought. And so you have this irreconcilable war that's going on. So Paul is, is on the path of sanctification and rejoices in the gospel and what God has done in Christ because the reality is that's what's going to take place for us. It's going to end one day. And he talks about this in Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, speaking practically here, because we're perfect positionally because of the righteousness of Christ. But he says, but I press on to make it my own because, notice this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? That, that's the reason. That's the why do you have an incentive to live holy? It's because you have been made the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you his spirit to live holy. But as Paul states here, I'm, I haven't arrived yet. So there's this corruption that still remains. And from this corruption, the confession says, arises a continual, very important to understand that, and irreconcilable war between your flesh and your spirit. This war is continual. There isn't a time out, right? It's not like, all right, flesh, hold up. Time out. There are no time outs. The flesh is saying, no, I'm not taking, I don't take time outs. There's no half time. It's constant and it's also 
irreconcilable, meaning that the flesh and the spirit are never going to shake hands. They're never going to say peace between us until that last and glorious day. So your flesh is constantly going to be warring against your spirit, which is what Paul says in Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's Romans 7 language there. Okay. So there's this opposition, there's this warfare that is, that is taking place. Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then notice how he describes this. What do they do? They wage war against your soul. This is serious, right? There's a warfare going on. And yet, how quickly do we forget that from time to time? We can forget because the sun's shining, everything seems to be going good, that there's a war going on in my heart, and I can't let my guard down. I have to keep fighting against it by the Spirit that God would be glorified. So you have that aspect of that irreconcilable nature between the flesh and the spirit that will be with us until glory. Okay, And now let's look at this last paragraph as the confession picks up on this. If I can have somebody read 13.3. In this war, the remaining corruption may often predominate for time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ... The regenerate part gains the victory. So believers grow in grace, move towards mature holiness in the fear of God, pressing on towards the heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands which Christ has head and king, as head and king, has prescribed for them in his word. Okay, good. It's excellent statement there. The reality of this war... And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you can testify to this, I'm sure, that there are seasons where it feels that sin has the upper hand, so to speak, in our lives. Where the remaining corruption predominates for a time. But that's not going to be the, what defines you as a believer. The war will always define you, but the aspect of sin having a control in your life for a time isn't going to define who you are ultimately. You may see seasons of that in your life, but it's not going to characterize who you are because of what the confession says here, that through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part gains the victory, right? The Spirit of God will show up powerfully in our lives and manifest Himself greatly in overcoming those sins. And one of the passages here that the Confession cites regarding this sanctifying work of the Spirit is Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. 
If I can have somebody read that for us up on the screen here. Okay. Almost undoubtedly, as I mentioned earlier, when sin seems to be in control for a season, you can trace it back to some neglect of spiritual discipline. And we should examine ourselves in, in light of that, right? When we see sin predominant in our lives, we should examine ourselves and ask some questions. How's my time in the Word? How's my time in prayer? How's my time in fellowship with the believers? Do I have a structure of accountability set up to help me defeat this sin that I'm battling against that will enable me to grow in grace? Right? We, we want to remember the means of grace that God has given to us in order to overcome the sin. We must remember that we've been given weapons for this warfare that we find ourselves in, right? Just as a soldier wouldn't walk out onto the battlefield without first assessing that he has the proper weapons for his warfare, in the same way we must be diligent in making sure that we're equipped to fight effectively, right? You don't get out on the battlefield and then say, I really need some weapons, right? You, you, you understand I'm in a war and I'm in a fight. The alarm clock goes off and I'm like, please, I need a scripture in my mind right now because <laughs> the war is on, right? And I, I'm going to be fighting here, right? In so many different ways, you can see it manifest itself in your life. So we want to make sure that we, we take advantage of the means of grace that God has given to us in order to fight here. But through the Spirit, we will get the victory in these things. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. That speaks to this end. It's a passage that we've read a few times. And let's start back in 1 John 2 verse 28. And let's read through chapter 3, verse 10. Can I get somebody to read that? 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 10. And somebody will? Thanks. Sin is lawlessness. You know that 
know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is a devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, thanks, Will. So what, what you see there is this aspect of talking about practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness, right? And so th th those are defining characteristics of a person's life. You're in one or two of those categories. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing lawlessness, right? And so John is inspired to say here, the one who practices righteousness won't continue in sin because his seed, the seed of God, the spirit of God remains in him and he causes him to turn away from that sin. So that's where our confidence lies, right? I don't look within myself and think, man, I really got to, man, I hope there's something that I can do to overcome this. I need to look to the means of grace that God has given me in order to fight effectively, right? It's not going to be one in the flesh. There's nothing I can do in and of myself to overcome that sin. And so that, that passage really speaks well to this issue of sanctification. I want to read to you, and I've mentioned this on a number of occasions, and so if you haven't yet read J.C. Ryle's track, Are You Born Again? Do that tonight before you go to sleep. Because I think it'll be very encouraging for you. And regarding 1 John 2.29, where it says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Listen to what Ryle says here. This is so encouraging. The man who is born again or regenerated is a holy man. And listen, listen to how he describes this warfare that goes on. He endeavors to live according to God's will, to do the things that please God, and to avoid the things that God hates. He wishes to continually look to Christ as his example as well as his Savior, and to prove himself to be Christ's friend by doing whatever he commands. He knows he is not perfect, He's painfully aware of his indwelling corruption. He finds an evil principle within himself that is constantly warring against grace and trying to draw him away from God. But he does not consent to it, though he cannot prevent its presence. Though he may sometimes feel so low that he questions whether or not he is a Christian at all, he will be able to say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be, I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think that's so right on the money regarding this war that goes on and this practice of righteousness. So the practice of righteousness does not mean that lawlessness is not going to be present and showing up in our lives. It means that by the Spirit, we'll continually put it to death. 
and fight against it and not consent to it. So when we think about sanctification, we want to remember that God in his word, he's, he's laid forth for us this banquet of grace that we're to come and feast upon by remembering what Christ has done for us and setting us apart as his own and how he graciously works in us that which is pleasing in his sight as he patiently conforms us into the image of his son. And so the encouragement that should come for us is, Lord, help me to be diligent in applying these means of grace so that I can grow into his likeness more and more and day by day. So let's finish here with 2 Peter 3.18, which encourages us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Any uh, questions, comments? Yes. righteousness, then be encouraged, right? Because that's the spirit and the flesh, and that's going to be from now until the day of glory. You're never going to stop fighting against sin. But that doesn't discourage us because we know the greatness of God's grace in our lives. We've seen it evidence. We know that there's progress that can and will be made in our lives. So it's not that we just kind of hang our heads and say, oh, well, we're just going to fight against sin from now until glory, right? <laughs> We apply the means of grace that the Lord has given to us and we see him working mightily 
in our lives. So, yeah, that's a good, a good illustration there. Good stuff. All right. Any other comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, there you go, yes. I'm not smart enough to take it to the X and Y axis. I really did bad in math in, in school, so. Um, but that's good. That's good. I appreciate that, Mike. All right, well, let's go ahead and, uh, and close out in prayer. Father, we thank you again for uh, this time together to open your word and to just thank you for your grace that we do see in our lives. Father, and how we long to see the sin that remains within us weakened and our lust to die, Lord. And so would you help us to remember that you've given means by which that happens, Lord. We don't, we don't just sit back and just wait for you to work in that, Lord. You've, you've given us your word, your spirit, the fellowship of the saints, uh, all these great means of grace for your glory to conform us into the image of your Son. And so grant us grace to be diligent to apply these things in our lives and always recognizing that any desire that we have to walk in holiness is wrought by you. And we thank you for it. And you will get all the glory for not only our justification, but also our sanctification and certainly our glorification. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.